Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. My choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sense podcast. My guest today is actor Titus Williberg. Titus, good to have you. Thank you for having me, Bob. I'm a big fan. Okay, good. Where uh, are you located right this very second in the era of the pandemic? Uh, I'm in Venice, California, uh, a.k.a. the Andromeda Strain set. <laughs> and it's, how are you coping with self-quarantining? Uh, you know what? I, I, I have to say, um, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not losing my mind. Uh, two of my kids are home doing their schoolwork, and uh, it's just sort of become the new norm. I venture out and uh, walk around and, and do things. But, uh, you know, a lot of reading, a lot of watching. Tons of uh, television, old, new, uh, yet to come, and and lots of films. So I'm I'm trying to utilize this uh, to my best ability, and it's uh, it's not so bad. Okay, so you're not really paranoid about getting it. No, I, I've been really hyper vigilant since it first kind of was creeping into the into my news feed. Um, and my girlfriend had lived in Hong Kong at one point and had gone through SARS. And so she, um, we sort of immediately just implemented all the, the, you know, the cautionary behavior and it's, it seems to have served as well. I mean, we venture out to go to the grocery store and that's really the extent of it, but you know, it is, you know, you mask up and glove up and go in and, and that's all we can really do. So what are you reading? Oh my God. Uh, I've just finished reading a great book about Sam Peckinpah, who was one of my 
favorite directors called if they move kill them and uh it's been on my shelf it was given to me years ago and uh i cracked it and quite fascinating um you know a, a bit of an undignified end to a guy who who was a game changer in in the field but uh fascinating really quite fascinating so what did you learn well, he he had been in the Marine Corps, and he was a you know he was not unlike a lot of the characters that that appeared in his films. I think that his the kinship to the uh, to the Pike character, the William Holden character in the Wild Bunch. But he was this sort of avid outdoorsman, hunter, um, you know, boozer, womanizer. Um, it's interesting. I, I to now go back and look at. His films, I see uh, a lot and hear a lot of of him um, in the characters in his films. Now he did Straw Dogs, didn't he? He did. He did. That's the only film I've ever seen where I said, "Wait a second, this might be too violent." It, I, you know what? I saw it at a drive-in, completely um, inappropriate for my age at the time. It had come out in theaters a year before, and I ended up going to see it get this double bill with deliverance so if you really want <laughs> completely you know destroy your your uh teenage mind it, um it, it was a game changer but i remember being very very disturbed of course drawn to it like a moth to a flame but then kind of realizing once i was watching this film that i was a, a bit in over my head although it stayed with me i have to say um but yeah, both of those films, I was shaken for quite a while after that. The only film that I've really been scared at, and I was scared in the book too, was Angel Heart. Did you ever see Angel Heart? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, I, I actually really, really liked that film. And the book is, is really, really, uh, Fallen Angels, a great book. I thought the film was, was quite good. I loved Mickey Rourke in it, and I thought De Niro. Right. I mean, Alan, quintessential kind of Alan Parker, uh, visually kind of stunning and, and De Niro comes in as suitably menacing and, and charming all at once. No, I I'm, I'm right there with you. I really enjoy that film. So what's next on your reading list? Well, you know what? I'm just looking at my bookshelves. There's uh, I, I have all the, uh, the Toshin books that, uh, you know, films of the sixties and the seventies and the eighties. And so I thought what I would do is peruse those books and come up with a, with the greatest hits list of films that um my kids have probably not seen and and sitting down with them we've been sort of going through some of the films of scorsese and and peck and paw and Truffaut and melville and i've got my own little film school going here how, how old are the kids that are uh, bunking up with you 18 and 14 my daughter's 14 my son is 18 now they're okay. used to me throwing um you know films at them but i'm trying to kind of uh, I want to expand it a little more. I mean, I don't think I'm, we're going to, you know, sit through any Bunuel or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll certainly try to, I'll try to sweeten the deal with, with something. Although we did do um, Polanski's The Tenant, which I, I, that, I find that film very, very scary, maybe more disturbing than anything, but that film really unnerves me. And are they receptive? Very much so. Very much so. I think the innocence, you know, the Deborah Kerr flick has got to come next because that's, uh, for me, yet another film, you know, uh, still holds up, still quite quite spooky. I think it's time to 
to break it. Of course, my kids want to jump right to the exorcist, which I say to my 14 year old daughter, you, uh, you're not ready for that. You won't recover. That'll take years. Well, that was still in the era of platform releases. And I remember people had seen it over Christmas. I'd been out of town and I went to New York to see it. And I think I was overhyped, you know, also being Jewish, maybe it doesn't really connect, but, uh, I wasn't frightened, but the fact that Max von Sydow was in a genre pick, I couldn't believe it. Well, I know, you know, and it's very funny because I remember there was an interview with, with him, uh, Bansido talking about it. And he said, well, you know, I'm Scandinavian. And so we have lots of folklore and everything, but the devil for us really kind of falls into the column of being sort of silly folklore. We don't really, um, you know, that it, it doesn't, uh, we don't absorb that. Um, I just think that for me, and I was raised in an agnostic household slash probably more of a Jewish household than anything but it still scared the bejesus out of me. But I think it was also because I'd never really considered, I remember kind of finding the the paperback book at, at a friend's house that I was having a sleepover and, and kind of cracking it open and, and reading it and thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to pursue this any further. And then <laughs> of course I saw the film and it, it just, it, it really knocked me. I, I didn't sleep solidly for for at least a month after that wow so what are your favorites if we had to boil it down to a few from the uh late 65 to 80 uh well i love bullet um and uh love coppola's films love the conversation love um and lamette uh huge lamette fan um long goodbye i also love i love uh you're talking about the long goodbye with Elliot Gould. With Elliot Gould, yes, yes. Right. Um, uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. Um, another, I, 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 I always have considered that sort of um, Mitchum's King Lear. I mean, as his performance in that film. There, there, there are um, aspects of that film that feel like a movie of the week, just in the way that it's shot and the music. Yet the performances, Richard Jordan, Peter Boyle, and Alex Rocco, it's this sort of amazing collection of, of actors. Um, the Last Detail, which I just uh, That was a great movie. Although a, Randy Quaid has kind of left the planet. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, right. he's, he's on Space Station Quaid right the now. The funny thing is the woman he's involved with is the daughter of a professor who was at my college. I never took a course room, but he was, he taught Russian and he was an odd guy. So reading about that story was a weird, you know, <laughs> six degrees of separation. <laughs> oh, you know, another one wages of fear, which I just uh, checked back into uh, a couple weeks ago. I'd forgotten how much I love that film. And I, you know what, I have to say the, the remake that uh, Friedkin did with Roy Scheider sorcerer has, has got a lot of merit. Great no, I agree. I told freaking when I saw him that a couple of years ago, because that movie was really denigrated when it came out, but I felt it had an amazing tension. I saw it in the national, which was the theater in Westwood before they tore it down and probably five people in the theater, but it really hit me. Oh no, it's, it's, it's great. And that, you know, that tangerine dream score is, is fantastic. I mean, exactly. that, it's super solid. I, I think it's really good. And Scheider is great. And, all those other actors, um, the the uh, the foreign actors that that surround him, and that no, it's I think it's a very very 
um, underrated film and, and kind of unappreciated, but you appreciate it. And I do. So, and we're the okay. two guys. Based on this conversation, you really seem like a student of the game. Very much so. My parents were both cinephiles. So the weekends were, and of course this is very, you know, long before we ever had VHS or anything. Right. You actually went to theaters and then had the great revival theaters all over New York cinema village and the Waverly twin and, um, and the Thalia on the upper West way yes. upper. I, my, my weekends were, were spent, uh, seeing the films of Kurosawa and, um, and, and Bunuel. um, my father did unfortunately take me to see sorrow and the pity when I was entirely too young, <laughs> uh, which actually really, really traumatized me. And I can remember waking up from this horrible nightmare. I was little, I was a little boy. And, and, uh, my mother said, well, you know, and I was sobbing and she said, what, what do you, what, what happened? I had a bad nightmare. I had a nightmare. And she said, well, what was your nightmare about? And I said, the Nazis were, were shooting people and, pushing them into a ditch. And my mother went, why would you even think of such a thing? And I said, that movie that I went to with dad, my parents were divorced. She said, what movie was that? She's trying to think of some World War II, maybe something with Burt Lancaster that she was unaware of uh, because my dad loved World War II films. And I said, it was the sorrow something. And she said, the sorrow and the pity. And I just <laughs> remember my mother literally going to her nightstand and picking up the phone and it was probably one o'clock in the morning and calling my father and just saying, what were you thinking? You know? And, and he said, it's a, it's an important film. And she said, you know, I can hear them going back and forth. I agree, but you know, he's, he's too little. And he went, he's got to know. Uh, but okay. Geez. Was that Max Ophuls? I believe so. But what was yeah. he made one? I remember seeing, and then he made one just after that was like six and a half hours. I remember bringing a sandwich to the movie. Don't yeah. remember the name right now. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You, you talk about this. I can remember my dad taking my brother and I to see um, Lawrence of Arabia. And it was the first film I'd ever seen that had an intermission. Um, but of course, yet, yet again, you know, that was the, the, the lean films when I was a kid, they were, the greatest adventures. I just absolutely loved Dr. Zhivago. And I remember having a friend, uh, uh, sort of a playmate friend of mine come along and my dad took us to see Dr. Zhivago and this kid just, it, it didn't land on him at all. He kept saying, this is stupid and it's so long. And I was, of course, <laughs> because that was my life. I was looking at him like, what a Philistine. Look at this kid. He hasn't been raised properly. Um, Okay, but your father at the time was teaching at Yale? Yes, yes. It's, but you were and living in Manhattan? No, we were living in New Haven. I was born in New Haven. And so the, the films that I saw, the very early films that I saw were shown at the co-op at Yale. So I can remember seeing um, Big Deal on Madonna Street as a little boy there and, and the Beatles movie, Help. And then he he left there. He was snatched away from Yale by the University of Pennsylvania, where he became the um, chairman of the Graduate School of Fine Arts. And we then moved to West Philadelphia, which there were a lot of um, great theaters. And uh, in particular, there was the one down on South Street that showed, um, you know, every time I turned around, we were going to see a Kurosawa festival. I can remember going for one, one afternoon and, 
and starting with uh, high and low, and then it was um, Yojimbo, which is to this day one of my all-time favorite films. Sanjuro, Seven Samurai, um, and I was uh, I was thrilled. I was happy, happy to be there. It was good for my reading skills too. I always maintain that I learned how to read because my parents did these <laughs> films. I wasn't doing you know green eggs and ham. I was you know sitting up there uh, you know reading the subtitles so i had knew what the hell was going on and all the chaplain of course in silent films and buster keaton films um and harold lloyd and and, and those films i just remember i went to hear john simon speak who recently died he of course was a film critic for multiple magazines and i remember talking to him and he was not a open guy and i said i can, if it's up on the screen i can pretty much sit through anything I yeah. love the experience. Just, no, no, it's not good. I leave. But, yeah. you know, it's different because when I first moved to L.A. in the mid-70s, and the great thing about living in L.A., because movies at the time opened in New York and L.A., you could literally see everything. Yeah. Whereas today, that's literally an impossibility. I know. I agree. And, and, and it breaks my heart. I mean, we do have one in uh, Brentwood on Montana that that revival theater and they and they throw up some really substantial films and every now and then someone connected to the film will actually be there for a little yeah. few afterwards but uh you know because everyone has blu-ray players um the a lot of those theaters have 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 gone away which kind of breaks my heart because there's really nothing better even even watching a crummy print of of a great film that it's that i you know it's that tactile experience of being there and um, it, it's just, it's entirely different. And I have a giant TV, a high def 4k ultra gas powered turtleneck sweater. TV <laughs> that's with a Sono sound system and it's amazing, but the, my popcorn isn't as good. And, uh, and I miss if someone should bottle that old cinema smell like a room spray that you could just sort of put on your couch before you, you tuck into a good film. I, I really miss that a lot, those great double features, things like, uh, you know, American Graffiti and the Wanderers. What a, what a great wow. double bill. Oh, God, what did that guy say when he was banging the bottles together? Wanderers! Oh, that so was the, uh, that's the um, Walter Hill. Warriors! Warriors! Warrior. Wanderers my brain is said Wanderers, my lips said Warriors, but the Warriors was another one. But you talk about that experience. I remember I went to Hollywood Boulevard for a preview of Halloween, and the, screen, and the theater was full. And just at a tense moment, somebody yelled out, you deserve to die. And it was like, that really made the whole yeah. movie. Well, that's the day. I mean, those, when I was a kid in New York, we would go to to Times Square because you could see a triple bill there for three bucks. And so you would typically get two really awful films and one, you know, sort of substantive film that would kind of make up for it. But we didn't care. You know, we would go and see a triple feature, you know, Kung Fu movies that were, you know, maybe they were, they were, they were not high art, but they were, you know, very, very entertaining. Um, but, you know, that's where we lived. The popcorn was horrible. They smelled like cat urine because all of them had rodent infestations. So there were just wild cats roaming inside. And you'd have, you know, emotionally disturbed people in the audience with you that would live in the theater. It was kind of like Escape from New York. Right. right. 
waiting for Ernie Borgnine to come strolling out. But the, uh, but there was, you know, the, and they would have these fantastic dialogues with the screen. These, the, these characters in the movie were really, exactly. and that was sort of, that was worth the price of admission as it was, you know, you didn't even care necessarily what was happening, but they'd be yelling always typically at the, at the victim who sprains their ankle when they're trying to run away from, you know, the Jason Voorhees character. Right. Okay. We can't leave New Haven without asking you about uh, Pepe's Pizza. Oh, that's, you know, I, I, it's in my DNA. I mean, there, <laughs> a, anytime my, my eldest son um, attended Choate Rosemary Hall. And so right. when I would go to visit him, uh, it, it was essential that we, we made our way into town uh, just to do that. I mean, there really truly is, there's lots of different pizza, but for me, when I eat that pizza, it's my favorite movie, my favorite song, my my favorite pair of pajamas. Everything is just rolled into one. It, you just can't beat it. It's it's, it's something I'm in, in the total agreement. You know. Okay, so at what age do you leave New Haven? I was about four. Okay, so very early. And how old were you when your parents divorced? Well, I, my, I never knew my parents married. My, my, my mother got pregnant with me and my dad, uh, split ski. So I never, I never knew them as a couple. Um, and I didn't even really technically meet my father until I was almost two years old because he was, um, part of a, um, uh, an artist program that was sponsored by the state department in which, um, American artists and artists from all over the world would it was like an exchange program so my dad traveled all over the the globe for almost two years living with um you know hosted by artists in in vietnam in france and italy and so he was gone and i you know my first memory of him i was about two years old he had just come back and of course you know there was no facetime or anything like that or and uh, I kind of wandered downstairs to my bedroom and there was this chap was asleep on, on the couch. And I went back upstairs to my mother's bedroom and I said, uh, Mommy, there's a, there's a man sleeping on the couch. And she said, that's your dad. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I went down and I poked him a few times and he sort of rolled over and looked at me and I said, hi. And he said, hi. And, uh, he said, come here and give me a hug. And I said, it was two. I said, I don't know you. <laughs> so, um, it was sort of crazy, crazy uh, uh, memory. But yeah, I didn't really sense of, of his, his presence until that age. Okay. So you were there till four and then you moved to outside Philly? No, we, we, we moved right into uh, the center of, um, of West Philadelphia. And my, my, my parents didn't live very far, far apart from each other. So I, you know, that, uh, I had access to both parents could, could walk. My brother and I could walk to and, and from their places. And my dad was, uh, my mother was a fashion illustrator. So she had a studio at home where she did her work as my father also had his painting studio at his home, but he was, um, you know, 90% of the time he was down on the Penn campus. So I spent a great deal of time down there. And so siblings, you talk about your brother. Does he share the same mother? 
yes, I have one, I have only one natural sibling, my brother Silas, who passed away about 18 years ago from a pre-existing um, medical issue. He had a form of uh, myotonic muscular dystrophy, which uh, manifested in his heart, and and uh, and he passed away at 45, sadly, prematurely. Um, but so we lived there, and my father remarried, and he had three children, two of which passed away. One was my infant sister. Uh, she died from uh, what they called then crib death. Now we call it sudden infant death syndrome. Right. Four months old. And then my other brother, Eli, was killed by misadventure in Thailand. He was uh, in a saloon and he went to use the bathroom. And while he was there, these guys sort of targeted him for for a robbery and they put heroin in his beer to incapacitate him unbeknownst to him. He came back, drank the beer and was, uh, you know, losing it, but he was allergic to heroin and, um, didn't know that and, uh, went into anaphylaxic shock 21 and, and died quite, quite tragic. Well, how does death in your family, obviously you miss these siblings, but how does it affect you emotionally in terms of your viewpoint on the world? Well, uh, I, I would say certainly, you know, being a father, um, I have, uh, I, I might be a little bit, I don't would want to classify myself as a helicopter parent, but I'm, uh, I'm one of those cautious parents who've, you know, not, not necessarily overprotective, but have really tried to raise my kids with a sense of always being aware of their surroundings, their environment you know, having their head on a swivel without being paranoid. And, and, um, cause I obviously I wanted my kids to have a normal childhood. Um, but, but, you know, awareness, a great awareness, but it's certainly, you know, many, many a sleepless night when they were, when they were little for sure. Okay. So you moved to Philly at age four. Do you stay there through high school? No, stayed there until I was, about 11 and then my father decided to he had a summer home in maine in, in a little town called lincolnville and he decided that he wanted to move there and live there full time that was where he painted he painted the the landscapes of maine and he he wanted to kind of he just said the city was too much and you know this is in in the at the very beginning of the 70s and uh so he moved up there into the summer home, which had no indoor plumbing, had no electricity. It was gas lights. There was a privy that was connected to the house. Uh, he ultimately, you know, brought electricity in um, by way of having a windmill. So he was really living off the grid. Um, and so I was sort of thrust into the public school system in rural Maine, which was you know, very primitive compared to. So where is Lincolnville in Maine? It's between Camden and Belfast, Maine. So it's really central, central Maine. It's about uh, an hour northeast of Augusta, Maine, a couple hours uh, north of Portland. Maine. That, that's really deep east. I mean, Maine is its own mentality. They think it's like New Hampshire and Vermont, but it's not. No, it's not. No, it, it's not unlike Texas in that way, right? It feels... When you're there, there is a, there are strong connections to the other New England states, but it's still very much this kind of autonomous um, 
entity in that way. You know, Mainers are a very, very different breed. Okay, so you moved to Maine full-time. What about your mother? She stayed in Philadelphia and then ultimately moved up to Boston so that I, she could be closer to my older brother and I. And then I ended up going to boarding school in, and stayed in Maine at a, a, and went to a boarding school in Vassalboro, Maine, which is right next to Waterville. It's a, the what school, was it called? It's called Oak Grove Coburn School. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's now, it went belly up due to some financial issues in the early 80s, I believe. Um, it's now the Maine State Police Academy. The state came <laughs> and bought it. It's a beautiful old set of buildings. You know, it looks like a giant castle on the hill. And uh, I got a, fantastic education there top-notch teachers and and students that i'm you know friends with to this day so well, that's very- one thing that people don't realize about uh, prep schools the level of education you get i remember going to college and there were 45 percent of the people were prep school students and it was just astounding what they knew irrelevant of their intelligence yeah well it's definitely i mean there is a reason they call it prep school because it you know i uh i felt very much, um, you know, I felt not necessarily ahead of the curve, but I was not, um, I would say that I was very aware that what the way I was being educated, um, which worked very well for me, um, was, was kind of exceptional, or that at least that the teachers that I had, for the most part, were people that really inspired me to want to learn. But however, when you're at prep school, usually there's a big us versus them. That's when you really, you know, experience and learn the hijinks, et cetera, in the dorms. Oh, completely. And you really separate from your parents and become your own identity. That's been my experience with the prep school kids anyway. Well, yeah. And, but the other thing is that then there's a kind of in-house uh, process of discipline when you, when you break the rules and, uh, they were very creative with those, with, with certain types of punishments that they would, they would ad- administer to kids who, like myself, I mean, I was, uh, I was far from an angel. I was into mischief all the time. So, uh, Oh, just, I, you gotta give me one, give me one of the creative punishments. Well, I, um, it wasn't just me, but my, <laughs> this, this friend and I, we, we discovered that if we could, push snow up against the side of the backside of the girls dormitory and create uh, footholds that we could climb up in through one of the rear windows and gain access into the girls dorm to see our girlfriends. And it didn't take them long to figure it out. And uh, we had done such a good job taking watering cans and covering it. So it was a solid block of ice. Then we had to go out there and break it apart with sledgehammers. And uh, it took a hell of a lot longer to take that thing apart. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you have this somewhat peripatetic uh, upbringing. What kind of kid are you? The kind who has friends? You're the outsider? How do you fit in? You know what? I had a lot of friends. I was was a very social, gregarious kid. Uh, But I was also a kid who my dad nicknamed me. He used to call me Lone Wolf because I also was very comfortable being by myself, I would frequently go and camp um, on his property um, on my own. I would kind of disappear. Even as a, a kid of 12 years old, I would just uh, go and pitch in the middle of nowhere out in the woods and, and live out there. But I was, um, 
no, I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of friends and, um, and was, was very, very, uh, very social. Really. Social. And were you a good student, bad student? I at first was kind of, uh, a mediocre student when I first arrived at Oak Grove and then through, uh, just having very, very good teachers. There was a, um, the ratio, the student teacher ratio was, was kind of perfect. Um, I, I had, uh, I had dyslexia, which manifested, uh, in my ability to do mathematics, had no problems at all with reading or writing or anything, but I really, really, um, struggled terribly with math. So that was my big bugaboo to overcome. So I started out as a, as a mediocre student and ultimately became actually a good student with the, with the help of, um, really good teachers and tutors and things and, and embraced and really enjoyed school. I have to ask with a name like Titus growing up, do you get shit from the kids or they accept you? No. And, and I mean, when I was a little kid, I mean, I still, to this day, I'll meet adults and they'll, you know, they, they'll say, Oh, tight ass. And I say, Oh God, I haven't heard that since kindergarten. That's, that's right. I took a lot of shit from my name and, you know, as a kid, I hated my name. Uh, but as I got older, I, I, I appreciated it certainly when they would, you know, call out names and, um, I was the only, the only Titus in my class, but yeah, it's a, it's a heavy one to hang on a kid, but, but as an adult, I'm okay with it. Is there a backstory with why your name Titus? I was named after Rembrandt's son. My, both of my parents, uh, loved Rembrandt and, uh, and they, they just really liked the name. And so they, they gave me the name. It's not a family name or anything like that, which I would chide my father later in life. I would say, I guess you really, really thought a lot of yourself. Um, <laughs> Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal. Unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials, and earn four times rewards points. 
Shop for items like Crest Toothpaste, Secret Deodorant, Old Spice Deodorant, or Gillette Razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. You graduate from high school. What's your next direction? Well, then I went to, I did a year of, of art school because I originally, my, my career path was going to, I was going to be a fine artist like my father. And I went to Bennington College and I um, just um, screwed around. I just never went to class. I was majoring in, in pot smoking and, and carousing and beer drinking and, and just kind of up to nonsense. That being said, it was one of the, one of the most interesting years of, of my early days. Um, but after an uneventful year, my father just said to me, you know, what are you thinking you're going to do with your life? To which, you know, and I was 18. I said, well, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. But my father just spent a shitload of money for me to go to Bennington. He was quite, quite cross with me. So he sort of installed me at, at our family compound and, um, and uh, sort of put me, we, we called it uh, inward bound. Uh, <laughs> in which my, I was sequestered in, in a guest house, an old Cape house on my father's property. Uh, no visitors, no girlfriends, no phone, no anything. And uh, one day uh, a, a truck came along, a flatbed that had massive moving boxes and they were filled with books. And my father said, here's how this is gonna go. And he basically said, you're gonna read these books and I'll give you the option. You can either do an oral presentation or you can write a paper. And knowing you, you're probably going to want to chat about it because you're too goddamn lazy to write about it, which is fine. Um, and you're going to, uh, you're going to live in that, in that house and you're going to, you're going to cut, uh, going to cut firewood, which I was fine with. Um, but you know, when you read crime and punishment, and sit down and basically regurgitate all of that over the course of almost four hours. And just to have my father turn to me and say, yeah, you're going to have to do that one again. There's a lot you missed. Uh, That part of it was brutal, but I I must say by the time that time period had, I'd read all those books and gone through it. I realized many years later, and I went back to school. I went, eventually went back to school. I went to NYU, did my undergrad and graduate work there. That I, that a large part of my education had occurred in that period of time. And Which is how long? It was almost a year. Wow. And just before we leave Bennington, did you read the secret history? Yes. Yeah, I did. I mean, yeah. If those walls could talk, I mean, there, there's a lot to be said, and and I think it's a it's a very very different school than it was when I was there. Um, there were really no checks and balances. So unless you were a, a seriously self disciplined kid, um, it w- it was not a good fit. And I was not I I, I was not self disciplined. Not certainly not in that way. There were too many distractions, and there was you know you you were kind of isolated, but you know, the fact that the, the ratio was, you know, there were 12 girls to every guy. It, I, I just lost my mind. 
And, <laughs> and so how'd you and, end up? At, how'd you end up at NYU? Um, I then I, uh, my I said my father said to me, "So what are you going to do?" I mean, clearly, you know, painting is not what you really want to do. And I said, "No, it's not." And he said, "Well, what is it that gets you up in the morning what, when when you're not thinking about drinking beer and 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 girls?" what do you think about? It? And I said, acting. And he went, well, then that's what you should do. Because if you're any, any pursuit in the arts, be it writing, you know, or, or being a musician or, or a painter or an actor, it, it, in order to have a modicum of success, and I'm not talking about um, financial success, we'll just say intellectual sustenance for, for, for oneself you have to, it has to be a quasi obsession. Otherwise there's no point in doing it because it's, it's brutal. I know that's true. Did you learn that from experience or did your father tell you? Uh, it was both. It was, I mean, he, that, that was sort of, you know, he forewarned me. And so he said, and you know, obviously you can't do that here in Maine. You're going to have to go back home to New York. So I, I packed it up. I got on a Greyhound bus with an army duffel bag full of my belongings and, and uh, crashed on people's sofas until I had enough jobs to be able to get my own apartment and, and pay my rent and did that for years. And then um, I, I, I decided that I wanted to, to go back to school. And I, of course, I, I had applied and, um, and auditioned and was accepted at Juilliard and at the Neighborhood Playhouse. But when I sort of sat back for a second, looking at my options, I decided to go to NYU because for me, despite the fact that I knew I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to investigate um, other areas of interest. And so I, I, that was, so rather than doing a straight conservatory, I decided to go to NYU and I really got the, you know, I got to have my cake and eat it too. It was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience once again. So you said to your father in this inward bound, you wanted to be an actor. There must be a backstory there. Well, I had been, I had acted in high school production, always been interested in that. And of course, growing up, seeing so many films, I was always pulled in, in that direction to a certain degree. Um, and then it, it really kind of turned a page my mother was living in Boston and because I didn't live there full time and didn't go to school there or anything, I had no friends. There were no kids. She was living right in the center of Boston. And so I was kind of hanging out at the house a lot and, you know, reading comic books and kind of screwing off going to the cineplex that was a couple blocks away. But you know, there was only so many times you could see the same films over, over and over again. And I think that the, the three films were walking tall uh, <laughs> Buford Pusser. Yeah, it was the second one with Bo Svensson, not the right. not the, yeah, the first Bay. one was better. Yeah, much better. And then Beyond the Door, which was a which was a a, a low grade attempt to try to remake The Exorcist with Juliet Mills, and um, and the Return of the Pink Panther, uh, and that was the only theater that was close. And my mother just came one day and she said, "I've signed you up." at this place called Actors Workshop. And I, I went, whoa, 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 wait, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm not going to a camp. She said, it's not a camp. It's, a, it's an acting program. It's a summer acting program. You can walk there. It's four blocks away. And you're going to go give it a shot. And that was the beginning of it for me. Um, 
I walked in there and within, you know, several hours of being in the company of a lot of these kids were really there studying seriously who wanted to, you know, and were already working here and, you know, doing commercials and things like that. Um, I got, I got bitten by the bug and it carried me through. So I always, you know, interestingly enough, cut to many, many, many moons later, I'm shooting the first, um, film that I did with Ben Affleck, Gone Baby Gone, and uh, back in Boston, and uh, we had a whole conversation, because he said, he started, we were just having a, you know, passing conversation, you know, when did you decide you wanted to be an actor? And I told him, and he said, uh, I never went there, he said, but I knew people that went there, and he said, that's interesting. And I said, yep, and here we are. So it's all come full circle. Okay, how long were you in New York before you went to NYU? Uh, about three years. About okay, so when you went to NYU, you were older than most I, of the students. I was a transfer student. Um, and part of that was that I was working all of these jobs and I wasn't really acting all that much because of everything that I was doing was to pay my rent. My father said to me, I, I thought you were going to be an actor. I remember I had gotten a job. Um, I was working construction and um, the foreman said, Hey, I'll put you in uh, in an apprenticeship um, at the Tin Knockers Union. You can go there. You'll learn the trade, and you'll get health benefits and all these things. And I was excited by that because I knew I was going to get a substantial pay raise. And um, I, I called my father and told him, and that's when he said, "But I thought you were going to be an actor. But I suppose if you want to be a Tin Knocker, go be a Tin Knocker. That you know you can make a good." Uh, he said, but, but stop telling people that you're an actor. And uh, that kind of shook me up a little bit. I kind of thought, no, 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 he's actually right. And I thought, I, I really need to get my ass back to school. I want to complete my education. You know, this isn't what I want to do. So I was very far. I mean, I still, even when I was going to school full time, I had to work multiple jobs to pay my rent and things. But I was, I was a full-time student as well. And it was, uh, NYU was an amazing experience. Um, but you were... Uh, focusing on acting at NYU. That was your number one, your major, so to speak. Yeah, that was my, that was my major. And I, so where were you in the hierarchy of students? Were you one of the people they said, oh, we give him the roles, he's going to make it? Or you just one of the troop? I was one of the troop. I mean, there was, uh, there were definitely some, some favorites there, but um, the, the student productions, the, the uh, level of professionalism, I have to say, some of the best directors that I wor have worked with were some guys that we were doing theater, they were directing, we, they were in their 20s. Smart, smart guys. Uh, the playwright, Frank Pugliese, uh, being one of them, who's gone on to have great success as a screenwriter, also um, uh, well, I'm drawing a blank right now on the show, um, House of Cards was, was right. one of them. Um, and a lot of people, my classmates that came out of there are people, actors of note, Clark Gregg, um, uh, Jace Alexander, Felicity Huffman, um, a, a lot of really substantial uh, people. And we did, you know, little student productions together. Um, but you had, you had access to people at NYU who were, who were actually working in in the business? I mean, I, you know, 
we had um, people like Ulu Grossbard and um, you know Kevin Klein and and Fred Zolo and, and Wendy Wasserstein. We got to interact with these people who who were really in it. Mamet was one of my teachers. I eventually left Circle in the Square and went to study with W. H. Macy and David Mamet that had started their own little studio from a summer program in Vermont into a full-blown um, studio that was part of the NYU system called the Practical Aesthetics Workshop, which eventually became the Atlantic Theater Company School. Uh, and those are all my classmates from that time that, that formed that you know very successful, um, prolific theater company. So why'd you go to graduate school? What was that about? Well, I got offered a gig. I had a professor, he passed away a couple of years ago, Mel Gordon, and he taught this, this class. It was an academic class, but it was called character development. And he had come out of the Chekhov um, school. That's where he had trained at. But he was now living a life of being really uh, an academic. Um, and so what you ostensibly did was you would create a character. You would have a whole, an entire semester to create a character from the ground up, and you didn't care what the character was. And then you had to write your own monologue. Um, so it was all ground up stuff. And uh, I really found that class to be invaluable. It, what it did was it really sharpened my ability to observe people because I, you know, I was sort of looking around, going, "What am I? What am I going to create a character? You know, what's who's, what's the character going to be?" And, you know, it, one week it was, oh, it'll be, uh, you know, the bartender at the saloon, uh, you know, McSorley's or sort of based on that or this, this, this schizophrenic uh, homeless guy that I come into contact with. Um, and after a year, um, Mel said to me, look, you know, I've been teaching this class here for a million years and um, I'm kind of, I, I just feel like I don't have anything else to do with it but you've got an interesting and fresh perspective on it. You could teach this class. And I went, well, I don't know. And he went, yeah, you're going to just do it. You're going to teach. You're just going to teach this class. And I'm going to arrange it so that, the, so that the credits work towards a graduate degree for you. So you get to, so it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And he, um, I know, I know I really didn't see very much of him. He just kind of, said bye-bye have fun but it was it was very interesting um to take something over of course the immediate thought on a lot of my classmates was oh well i'm going to take his class because that's going to be but i made everybody audition for the class and that was my way of weeding out people who were, thought they were just going to show up and get a get a pass grade um but also because i only wanted serious people in there you know i i, I wanted to uh, I wanted to people that really came there that wanted to do that work to to do the work. I didn't want to have to babysit people and or listen to bullshit excuses with that I had used a thousand times. <laughs> so I weeded them out, and it became a, a substantially smaller class when I was teaching it. But um, they were all really top shelf people. So, how many years did you did it take for you to get that graduate degree, or you were doing that program? Yeah, for two, I was doing that for two years. And then and were you taking any other courses or your only gig was to teach? No, no, I was doing, I was taking classes in cultural anthropology, um, took a couple of 
uh, pre-law classes. I mean, these are just things that I thought, I thought pre-law, I, I, I felt it would be inevitable that I was going to play a lawyer at some point in my career. And I had a couple of friends that were in the law school. And when they would do their mock trials, um, they would come to me and they would say, I, you know, you're an actor. I want you to, to teach me how to do opening and closing statements here. I, here's my opening statement. And, um, I want you to kind of coach me through this. How am I going to? And so I, I was, I went to a few of them just to observe these guys doing their things to see if they actually had listened to anything that I had told them and was kind of pulled into it. And, uh, I very quickly realized that that was not what I wanted to do. My father was very, very disappointed in me. I remember at one point he said, so what are you taking? And I said, Oh, I've got these pre-law classes. And he said, well, what are you, why, what are you, what are you taking pre-law for? And I said, well, you know, you never know. And he said, Titus, you know, when you're an artist, there's no such thing as a fallback. And I went, well, yeah, yeah, I, I know. And, and, uh, and he was, he was really irritated. He said, why would you? He said, anybody can do that. Anyone can become a lawyer. You, you, just, gotta, you just have to put in the time and put in the work. But not everyone can be an artist. I thought you wanted to be something substantial. And that's not... And my father had many friends who were lawyers. I don't think that he had any lack of respect for them. But, but he, he, um, for me, he took umbrage to the idea, you know, as if... You were raised in this fucking environment, and how could you not absorb all this stuff? And now you're going to go and do a regular job? Um, yeah. Well, that does beg the question that it is certainly hard to make it financially as an actor. So you're done with your schooling. What's the next step? Yeah, I'm done with, with schooling, and, and I'm out in the world, and, and it's, you know, the crickets are chirping. I mean, there's just, it was the endless backstage um, submissions showing up at theaters with headshots and resumes. And, you know, and I had a, I had a large resume. I'd done a lot of work um, there and then at NYU and, and off, off and off, 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 you know, other planet Broadway stuff. Um, but it was, it was, it was really, really tough. And, so there I was again, you know, sort of working multiple jobs to be able to, you know, just to pay my rent. And, um, you know, would, would come into contact with people who would say that they were managers or, or agents. And, you know, 90% of the time it was some sort of come on or, or, or bullshit story. And, um, and I was working at a, at a saloon called The Edge. And a guy, who frequented the place had, I had just done a production of American Buffalo and he had seen it. And uh, he was sitting at the bar one night and he said, I just realized I saw you in American Buffalo. I said, oh yes, yes, I did play. And he said, so what are you doing behind the stick? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to make a living. He said, well, are your agents not doing a good job? And I said, I don't have an agent. He said, I'm an agent. <laughs> I thought, I said, oh boy, okay, here we go. But he seemed like a straight shooter to me. Um, gave me his card, and I didn't, uh, I think it went in my pocket, and I kind of forgot about it. And then about 10 days later, he came in, and he said, hey, man, 
I haven't, I haven't heard from you and I didn't have a number on and didn't know how to, how to contact you or are, are you, do you want to take a meeting or not? He said, it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to chase you. Uh, I said, sure. And, and sure enough, he had a legit agency represented some super solid actors, not a big agency. And it had a, a large modeling agency, very successful modeling agency. And he started sending me out. And after a couple of weeks of working with him, I landed my first role, which was kind of a walk-on in a movie called Navy Seals, where I played this, this um, you know, redneck who starts a fight with Charlie Sheen, and Charlie beats me up, and uh, and then things just kind of kept going. But it, you know, so for me, it's always been um, more of a slow burn. You know, I. Um, I, I've, it's been the journeyman path for me. It's always been, you know, work to work, to work, to work. Um, and, uh, which is good because I think honestly, if I, if I'd had success when I was younger in my twenties, like a lot of my friends did, I, I would have, you know, I'd ended up like one of those monks in Saigon, you know, with a jerry can of gasoline. I mean, it's a weird analogy, but there was definitely a part of me that was, kind of wild, maybe a bit self-destructive. And I don't think that having access to money and, and, and uh, um, then other things would have been, would have been necessarily good for me. My journey in that way was very, very humble. And I think it kept me very grounded and kept me very focused. I, I, I would see people around me that were, you know, always talking about getting new headshots and, and trying to go to this party or to this nightclub because X hung out there. And I thought, what's that? You know, this isn't Schwab's. I mean, it's, you're not going to walk into a nightclub in New York and, and unless you're a beautiful woman and someone's going to walk up to you and say, I'm going to make you, you know, I'm going to give you every opportunity you could ever dream of to achieve a modicum of success as, as an actor. So it, in that way, it was, it was uphill and it's, it is truly navigating the sea of heartbreak. But as things started to become more and more consistent, um, as far as getting work, it, it's also, a, it's a process of learning. You know, I, I, I learned what worked, um, in, in the business as far as, um, the auditioning process and things, stuff that they don't teach you. They don't teach you how to act in front of a camera. Um, you know, my background was purely in the theater. And so jumping to film and television was a massive learning curve. I've learned a lot from watching some of my favorite actors on screen, but then it becomes a technical thing. I didn't know the difference between an 80 millimeter and a 150 millimeter lens and what my field of play was and how I was going to do that and finding my light and all those, all those things that you really learn are on the job training. Okay. So the agent you meet uh, in the bar, he sends you out on gigs. You're auditioning. Usually many people are auditioning. What was it about you? Or what was the, the way you auditioned that would seal the deal for you? Uh, I was prepared. Um, I, I had a, a big belief in not to half-ass it. And one of the things that I learned is that I couldn't really act with a paper in my hand. So um, I would spend a lot of time memorizing the material for an audition. And I, 
it always sort of vexed me because I would go to, now it's not to say I've never gone into an audition holding a, uh, holding the, the script in my hand, you know, certainly during pilot season, um, when you've got seven, eight meetings in one day, you, you have to kind of cherry pick. And that's what I would do. I would go, okay, this is the one that I think I can, I, I, I have, I have a good chance of getting this. It's in my wheelhouse. So I'm going to put all of my energy into memorizing this material. And then the rest, you know, would, I would do the best that I could possibly do. But for me, I think, um, it was the investment of time and focus that, um, that kind of won the day for me. And I was also very, um, I didn't really fall necessarily into any category. You know, I, I, I wasn't Brad Pitt cute and I wasn't, you know, uh, John Cazale character actor. I was sort of what they would call an off leading man. And so, you know, the beauty of that was I did get to play and have been, been privileged to play lots of different types of characters. The other hard part is that you play, you know, if you do a heavy, which I did quite a few heavies, um, they, the temptation or the, you know, the term pigeonholed, it, it tends to kind of carry over to a certain point. And so there, at one point I did, I was getting offered a lot of sort of the same type of roles. And despite the fact that, you know, for the sake of commerce and, and looking after myself, um, that I had to turn stuff down, uh, which I really was not in a financial position to do. But I thought if I don't set the precedent now by not doing this, I'm going to forever, I'm going to get locked into doing this and I don't want to do it. And just as I made that decision, I got a call to go and read for a role on NYPD Blue to read for Mark Tinker and Stephen Bochco and David Milch. And I thought, of course, when I got the call, oh, it's a, it's a cop. It'll be a cop role. And he said, no, actually, this guy, is a, he's a trauma surgeon in, in the ER. And um, Nick Turturro's character gets shot in a shootout. And you're the guy that, that, that patches him up. And I went, they're not going to cast me as the doctor. They, 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 they never will. They see me as, as a hard guy. Uh, 90% of Hollywood thinks that I'm Italian and I'm actually English and Irish. It's, you know, So I don't want to waste anybody's time. I'd rather wait until a cop role comes along because that'll be something I'll get. And they said, well, they, they know who you are and they want to see you for this. And I went in and I kind of pulled myself together. And I read and, and, uh, and they cast me on the spot and, uh, that character ended up kind of recurring over the years on, on NYPD blue, but he was a doctor. He was a very kind of, um, he was unlike any character that I'd played before, certainly on, on screen is sort of soft spoken. You know, he was the, he was the doctor that if one had a doctor, he had, you know, impeccable bedside manner. He's a guy you would want to treat you who wouldn't treat you like an idiot. Um, um, but also wasn't uh, perfunctory in, 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 in the handing off of, of bad medical news. And that kind of, uh, that opened up my relationship with David Milch and Stephen Bochco. I then went on to do Brooklyn South with them and then Big Apple after that with, with David Milch and 
went on to do Deadwood with David Milch. And so that collaboration lasted over several shows. And I did some other work with Stephen Bochco. But that was, for me, uh, a major turning point in how I was I was perceived. I mean, they, I think casting directors and other people in the business sort of said, oh, he can he can do this other thing. And I and I owe that to to Bochco and to Tinker and to, and to Milch to sort of say, we're going to give you this shot to, to do this thing. It was a game changer for me. And at what point after you get the gig in Navy SEALs, do you stop having to have a day job? Oh, I, um, I'm trying to think. I stopped having a day job. So let's, for arguments, I did Navy SEALs in 1989. I, yeah, I didn't go back to, I, I don't, no, I don't, I don't think I ever did go back to a day job after that. Okay. And you talked about the heartbreak. Can you tell us a little bit more about the heartbreak of uh, being an actor and auditioning, et cetera? Yeah. It, well, it's, it is that it's so personal and you have to learn for it to not be personal because there's so much, there is so much rejection. And particularly when you put in a considerable amount of time into an audition and you go in and you do really well. Um, and it's evident that you've done well and you're being um, sort of not necessarily pat on the back, but, you know, and you've made your casting director friend very happy that they brought you in um, only to then find out that they've cast someone who is not only not physically right for the role, but not a very good actor. Um, those things, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow but I kind of learned pretty quickly to remove my ego from it and to just focus on what it was that I could do. So that if I didn't get something, I would say, Oh, there was something that if I'd done something differently or, and also to listen to the notes that were being given by directors and certain things. Um, yeah, there's always going to be, I mean, I think even at the highest level, there, there will always be roles that an actor might want that they're not going to get just because, you know, 90% of the time they want the guy or the gal to walk in the door and they go, Eureka, you're, you're precisely, you know, what I'm looking for with a character. Now, if you can act, that's going to be even better, but the physicality, <laughs> all, the physicality is all there. Um, but that's what it was for me. I, I learned to not take it personally. And I think it helped me because I would, I think, you know, and I've been on the other side of the table when people have come in and auditioned for, for things that I've been a part of that. Um, when you, when, when you carry that, that anxiety, it's, it's, it, it carries an odor, you know, that, 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 that uh, it's not necessarily ambition, but it's, it's, it's the anxiousness. I want to, you know, I, I, I want to do well. I, I, and you can't charm your way into a, into a part. You have to come in and do the work. And once I realized that it wasn't about the small talk and the bullshit that occurred, you know, before and after the audition or, you know, how your kid was doing in school, it, it, it was really my only job was to 
do the best possible job that I auditioned that I could do. And that was it. And then I had to just, and either they were going to get it or they didn't get it. And, and I, once I got to that place and it wasn't, it was arduous. And that was a conversation I had with myself that went on for a minute. Uh, it was liberating. And then I was, was truly able to just go in, do that, finish it, walk out and be okay. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant, or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26th. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. Okay, now beginning you uh, were a stage performer, and you're mostly known as uh, someone who's on screen. So have you acted on stage, or is that something that you want to do, or where does that leave you? Yeah, I mean, all of, all of uh, the beginning work that I ever did was on the stage. And I have not been on stage in, in many, many years, and I miss it. And I would really like to find um, the right play to do. I mean, a couple of things have come across my desk, but it's also been a timing issue um, and, and a commitment thing because of my shooting schedule with Bosch and or other, other projects that I've been involved with because it's, it's a big commitment. I, I would, nothing would make me happier than to find the right play. And to go do you know a four or a six month run of a play, I think every actor worth their salt, or, or at least who is who comes from the theater, is that's always where you want to get back to. You 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 know, there's there's nothing like performing in front of a live audience. It's it uh, you fire on all cylinders as an actor when you're doing that. So how'd you get Bosch? Well, I got the script. And, um, who's your agent is you, is same agent from when you got Bosch. Yeah, I've had the, I've been with the same agent for 
20 something years. And that uh, agent is in works where? At Paradigm, Chris okay. Schmidt at, at the Paradigm Agency. Um, and she's, I mean, she's not, she's like a member of my family. I mean, um, so she's, we've, we've, we've been through it all right. uh, together. So I got the script. Wait, did, how did you get the script? Did she say, I have something perfect for you? Yeah. Or well, how did she, we- hey, you're, we're emailing you this script. It's a, it's a, it's a pilot for Amazon. It's called Bosch. I said, okay, great. Um, and interestingly enough, I had just written a pilot for myself. I'd gotten, gotten to a, um, my late wife had um, been ill with cancer and that had been obviously my primary focus was looking after her, but also having to work at the same time to be able to pay for medical bills and to take care of the family. So in, in the last couple of years of her life, I, I, I would show her scripts. So it's like, yeah, look at this pilot, read this thing. And she would go, God, it's direct. It's direct. You don't want to do that. Don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Um, and so she said, why don't you, you're a writer. Why don't you write something for yourself? Something that, and I thought, okay, sure. That's a good challenge. So I wrote something for myself and was literally getting ready to go to the next phase, which would be to go out with my manager and my agent and take meetings to see if someone wanted to do this as a show. Just, just to stop for a second. You have a manager and an agent. Can you explain the roles of each for my audience? Yeah, one, well, my manager sort of is the the keeper of the castle and um, the sort of trajectory and, and the brand, the, you know, the, and he navigates different things with the, you know, with the agents simultaneously. And, uh, how long have you been with the manager? For 14 years. Okay, so you're a loyal guy. I'm a loyal guy. Um, so, so you were writing this thing that your late wife inspired you to do. Yeah, so I wrote it, and, it, and um, I was able, I'm, I'm lucky because I have lots of uh, very, very strong, successful writer friends that I was able to send it to. And, of course, you know, I would say I, I, I want to hear everything. I don't, you know, don't. Don't, uh, don't soft sell it back. And so, uh, the responses were very, very positive. People were saying, yeah, you should, you should do this. I, I struggled with it because I felt like, um, it's actually about a painter. And I thought, okay, the dialogue is solid. The idea is very, very solid, but what's going to sustain an audience interest in this guy who's, who's having a kind of existential midlife crisis. Anyway, cut to I'm doing sort of some final tweaks before we're going to head out with it. And I get Bosch and I read it. And I mean, I read it very fast. It was a, the, the, the pilot script was a page turner. And I went to myself, Oh wait, I read one of these Harry Bosch novels years ago. Oh, marvelous. But everything was on the page. So I, it wasn't, you know, even if I hadn't uh, read one of the books many, many years prior to that, it, uh, you know, it was Eric Overmeyer and Connolly had, had 
written this together and it was really strong. The character was clear and I thought, oh shit, you see, now I'm in trouble because this is, I couldn't write a better, you know, role for myself. I understood the character immediately. Um, I knew how I would want to play this character, but I also felt like it wasn't broke, so there was no need to fix it. I mean, that which was on the page was was really clear. Through a series of mishaps, I was supposed to meet with Obermeyer and Connolly and with the producer, uh, Peter Jambruga and Henrik Baston. While I was hopping the train, I was at my farmhouse in Connecticut. I was gonna hop on the train and go to New York to meet them, and my cell phone got stolen, and my kids were little, and I didn't, you know, they were with friends, but I didn't want to not be able to communicate with them. So I jumped off the train and went, no, nah, I'll have to reschedule it. And I was shooting uh, one of the Transformers films at the same time, which meant I was in Chicago, I was in Michigan, Hong Kong, it was all over the place. Um, and so the meetings kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And a couple months later, I got a call again from my manager and he said, look, you got a little window. You're going to be in LA for a couple of days. So, um, we're, we're, you're going to have the meeting. You're going to meet Michael Connolly and company. And I went, wait, wait, wait for Bosch. And he, yeah, I said, I thought that boat sailed. That's been months. He said, no, they can't find Harry. It's a big problem. They're actually even considering sort of shutting down for a minute and regrouping because they're, they can't find Harry. So lo and behold, I, I uh, went back, looked at the material, got tight with the material, went in, met Michael and Jim McKay, who direct, the director who did the pilot, and, and Henrik and Peter Jan. And once again, it was sort of, it was in that thing of I didn't want to want it too much because I realized, A, it's a great character. B, it shoots in Los Angeles. Um, and it's this brave new world of, of streaming content uh, from the ground up. This is a really, really interesting place to be. And I got a call not long after the meeting from my manager. Um, and uh, he said, you're the guy. And I was thrilled. And I literally had to pull the car over because I, I, I thought I might, you know, crash the car. I was so excited. And, and it's just been... It, it, and I knew after meeting with them, and certainly I knew on the first day that we were on the set shooting the pilot, that I was a part of something that was, it's not, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We just, it was, it was a great character. It was a great environment. And the, the source material of Michael's books was substantial, really interesting. And we hadn't seen anything like that. Um, Certainly not within this format, right? Rather than being the typical sort of standard fare of, of, of a police procedural television show, we were going to take 10 episodes to work one case rather than Bosch coming in, catching the call and the beginning of it. Then the middle of the show is him working the case and then he's got the bad guy in bracelets, book him Dano by the end of the show. Things were going to carry through. And um, so it was much more an established framework to the experience of, of actually reading one of Michael's books. And, uh, and also having Mike there, the cast, 
quality of the writing and and the cinematography i mean everything i remember watching the the first pass at at the pilot and i went shit you know if this doesn't go um it's going to take me it's going to take me a long time to get over this because this is something that i think um has more weight than anything i've ever done uh, you know and and that was that's a tall that's a tall order considering that you know obviously having done shows like the good wife and sons of anarchy and 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 the the work that i've done with david milch um this this one was was kind of perfect and you know fortunately amazon saw found their way to to make the show and i think the show honestly has has consistently gotten better each season that we've we've, we've gone on I certainly agree. Not that it wasn't good to begin with. Did Amazon hesitate or were they immediately in? I think that they were immediately in. I, you know, not just because of the, the massive um, fan base, for lack of a better term, that Michael's books have. I mean, Jesus, the, you know, the people that read his books are deeply dedicated. Um, and... Uh, and those books are, you know, incredibly successful globally. And we're, you know, having Michael there, I think if you took this material, if you built this from the ground up, um, it would, it would be different, but it resonates the, the way Mike spins, spins the case and the tale is what makes it exceptional. But once again, you know what we we've seen, we've seen, many cop shows and I've done many of the cop shows. It's, it's not new, but it's, um, I think it's, it's a revisitation to films of this genre of the sixties and the seventies or something that feels older. It's comforting, but it's kind of older. It's something familiar to us, but it doesn't feel, um, we're not constantly pushing the, what my grandmother would have called the blood and thunder envelope, right? I mean, it's really about a guy who's relentless and he's very good at his job. Um, and he's a grinder and he's, but he's flawed. He's human. I think that's what I think pulls the audience. They kind of, that, that humanity of him, he's, you know, he's fallible, he's vulnerable. He's, he can be a cranky prick. Um, he doesn't subscribe to the sort of societal norms that most people do of coming in to a room and saying, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. You know, he, Harry comes in, he's got something to do and he doesn't want to, he's not a small talk guy, you know, and you kind of have to, you have to support and dig a character that has that kind of, um, has a sense of, of direction and commitment. There's nothing wishy-washy about him at all. He's, you know, he's got, he has that forward speed. Well, it's just funny talking to you now. It really proves it's a character because your uh, minute by minute personality outside the role is not the same. No, no, we're very, very, we share some similarities certainly. And, and I've tried to, but once again, you know, there was only so much I could necessarily bring to this character because Mike had created such a strong, strong character. And there were things that we had to change. Um, obviously, we didn't follow the books chronologically and we weren't going to do a period piece 
and set it back so that we could it would be Harry's military service in Vietnam. So we updated it. But I always felt that it was very important for that uh, Harry's military service be central to a certain degree as to who who he was. You know, a lot of cops have said to me that who enjoy watching the show, um, you know, it's interesting when I watch you move and, and uh, the tactics that you employ and your weapons handling, it's not, that's not cop stuff. That's, that's, that's military. And I said, no, I wanted that. That was something that was important to me is that that muscle memory, that he not move like a cop, that he move like an operator, like a former SF operator. So all those little things. And, and Mike was, um, and, and Eric were very open to those, to those ideas. Um, so that was your idea to make it a military style. Well, to make yeah, to to give him that physicality. And how did you achieve that? I mean, did you hire a trainer or someone with insight? Well, I've trained many times over the years, not only with law enforcement but with military guys, um, just for my own for my own pleasure and my own education, and also for roles. And prior to doing Bosch, I was with a, a group of um, former Navy SEALs when I did, that I connected with when I did Transformers. They, they did a training program as well as, if you see that film, all the guys that are with my character, those are all real SEAL guys. There's, they're, they're, none of them are, well, some of them are actors, SEAL, former SEALs slash, and they've become actors and stuntmen and technical advisors. Um, so I had just gone through a whole series of, of weapons handling with them. And I thought this is a great way to kind of move that, even though Harry wasn't, um, he wasn't a Navy SEAL. So what I went back to was to look at the weapons handling techniques of a special forces guy, army guy, that would be, match with Harry's age. So the way that the way that Harry holds his weapon is is very kind of old school. Um, and that stuff gets picked up on by by military and law enforcement guys. Um, but it's sort of my way of you know, I, I and I I get that. I mean if I watch a film and there's weapons handling and it's badly done, it will it will literally take me out of the movie. Um, I just say to myself, wait a minute, you, you had time. It's not brain surgery. It's, it's muscle memory. Do the goddamn work. Um, so there's little, little things like that about Harry. That, that we Okay, really- so we live in the era of peak TV, 400 scripted series, whatever, per year. Bosch comes out. It's on Amazon. At the time, people are not quite. Uh, as accepting of streaming media as they are today. First season comes out. What does it feel like on your end? I mean, if you look at Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad was on TV. It wasn't until it was on Netflix a couple of years later that people yeah. even caught on. Yeah. Well, I, it, it, it was interesting to see. Um, and I kind of gauged it based because Amazon at that time, they didn't really – well, and a lot of a lot of networks don't either share a lot of that data. So, you know, the the process of trying to figure the numbers was was a process of kind of 
extrapolation. Um, so we had a sense that the show had done well, um, just in, uh, now I've never read, been one to read reviews, um, of my work. And it sort of goes back to something that my father said to me when I was a kid, when I called him up to congratulate him on this love letter that John Ashbery had written to him in time magazine. And I, and I said, Oh, you know, that's so great. And you, that review you got from Ashbury and but he said, No, I, I, I've not read it. And I went, Oh, no, well, the, you got to run out and get it, Dad. It's really, it's quite, it's amazing. It's beautiful. He said, No, no, no. Have you ever, have I ever read a review of my work to you? Well, no. Have you ever seen me or even discussed a review of my work with anyone? No. Uh, and he said, Right. And I said, Why is that? And he said, You either get a swollen head or a broken heart, and neither, neither state is desirable. <laughs> And that resonated with me. And so I carried it through. Um, and so there were all these online reviews on the Amazon website that they were encouraging us to read. Oh, you know, five stars. People are rating this thing. So it was the brave new world. Um, I, and as I said, I think if this was an, a, a purely original show that someone had just written the pilot, um, it could have, been a, it could have been a tougher road. But I think because of the success of Michael's books, that people were invested in wanting this to succeed because they were finally going to get to see the kind of physical embodiment of this character that they dedicated, you know, hours and hours of their time reading the books. And suddenly Harry was here. So there've been six seasons already. How has it changed your life playing the role of Harry Bosch? Well, certainly, um, you know, my, my anonymity is um, pretty much shot. Now, I, 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 don't, I don't, my life is not like Bruce Willis or Brad Pitt. You know, I, <laughs> I can walk into a store and not, and not have, and be, be swarmed by, by uh, crazed fans. But, um, no, I, you know, the people, people come up to me quite often and, and, uh, and talk about the show. I'm recognized a lot for, for the character. And the sweet thing is that, um, people, people like, they really like Harry. So it's, there's a, a tremendous amount of goodwill that comes, uh, when someone will approach me. Um, and it's different than, you know, the, the losties as we would call them when I was doing lost, I mean, they would come at me with these technical questions about story and, and the mythology and and I would say, look, you know, sometimes for me, ignorance is bliss. I just kind of showed up and did, did my job. Um, didn't, didn't know a lot. And I certainly didn't, um, I had nothing to do with the writing and the way that that story was tied up and that series was tied up. Did you enjoy it? Um, whereas Bosch, it's kind of all over the place. I've got, Military people, law enforcement people, um, people who are in in the literary world. It's and they all the 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 consistent thing is they all they like Harry. They say, you know, you got to root for him, and he kind of because he says and does the things that a lot of people would like to do, but they don't want to lose their jobs. Um, and so he kind of become he he has a bit of that everyman thing, and I think that's what makes him accessible, you know. And he's not uh, it's not that 
kind of toxic masculinity that we that we see you know he's not a misogynist he's not a he's not an asshole he can be an asshole sometimes he can he can be really abrupt but then you, that's the thing that kind of makes him interesting because you kind of go well yeah and, and when he's contrite he's contrite certainly as he you know his relationship to his daughter um and he and he's capable of apologizing when he's wrong so that that's what I think makes him accessible to people and endearing to people. And certainly if one was a, a victim of a violent crime, you would want someone like Harry who is not going to necessarily break the law, um, but would definitely circuitously move around, you know, the bureaucratic, uh, um, you know, blocks to, 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 you know, obtain justice for, for the victims. Cause as Harry says, you know, the closure is a myth. All that I can. I agree I can. in real life. It's a, a myth. I, I do too. Um, so uh, a couple of elements about the show. Are you a jazz fan personally? I am very much so. I don't have the encyclopedic knowledge um, or the record collection that Harry has, but I've, I've grown up listening to all different kinds of music, but I've, I've always loved jazz um, because both of my parents loved it. And my dad uh, knew quite a few. Um, he knew a lot of those guys. He knew Coltrane and he knew Miles, Miles Davis and Monk and um, was, was friendly with them. So the, that his, his turntable had, had a lot of jazz piled up on it. Um, and that's such a, a a central part of who Harry is, you know, his his love for that. And I always kind of, you know, that it was mentioned in one of the books. And I said to Connolly, I think it was a year ago, there's that there's that marvelous bit in, I can't remember the name of the book right now, where we find out where Harry first heard jazz. And I said, we, we, it, and it would be a flashback. It's when he's a teenager. He takes a young black woman to... He's going to take her to the school prom and through a series of mishaps, he's, he gets kind of beaten up and then the girl misconstrues his desire to take her to the prom as um, being some sort of a, a, a weird um, token movement. And so she rejects Harry. So the girl's father ends up driving Harry back to, the house that he's staying with this foster family. And when they're in the car, Harry hears his first taste of jazz and it, and it, it's a lifelong love affair. Another thing people mention constantly about the show is the house. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you, did they find the house? Do you have any specific feelings about the house? Yeah. Peter Jan Brugge, who's one of our producers, um, worked with Michael Mann. Um, over the years had done several films with Michael Mann and in the film Heat that house is Amy Brenneman's house in Heat and there's a scene with Bob De Niro and Amy Brenneman that where they shot it right there in in that uh, in that great room but what Peter Yan told us interestingly enough later a little trivia was that Michael Mann set up 
green plates. So rather than just shooting it in real time, which is what we do, whatever's in the background going on, helicopters or planes, we don't sweat it. It, it happens, it happens. He shot plates so that he could actually control visually what was behind them. And despite the fact that the, some of that technology was somewhat new, um, it may have been cleaned up. I haven't seen the latest Blu-ray cut of Heat, but I can remember seeing it and thinking, that's CG, or there's some sort of a, an effect there because you could see a little weird kind of halo around their heads. Right. Um, that house is amazing. It's, it's the, the best views of, in L.A., it's a colossal pain in the ass to shoot up there because those streets are all, right. you know, they're like, they're like uh, they're horse paths, you know, they're so in order to, um, we can't bring our big trucks up there. So we, they've got to truck in the equipment, offload it. And, you know, we've got a large crew, but you can't, it, it's close. It's a, it's not a big house. I mean, there's that one kind of big, great room that Harry looks out onto the city, and you have the, his patio, which is there. But it's a tiny, tiny house. The rooms are really quite small. But it's, you know, it's Harry's nest. I mean, he's he's the eagle looking above his his city, and uh, Peter Yan just uh, it snapped too. It's a different location than it is in the books because it faces out on the other side, whereas Harry's house in the books looks over over Studio City and, and the 101. Well, speaking of Studio City and the 101, that's sort of amazing. The, the city itself is a character in the story. And for those of us who live here, it's nailed so right. I mean, like watching the sixth season, it seemed like you shot in the summer into the fall just based on the light. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, we start at the end of July, and we finish up usually the last week of November. So... We're, we're really in the thick of it. August is probably the hardest. The end of August is the hardest month just because the heat. And in this past season, we shot a lot in the valley. You know, the, the 308s, the, uh, you know, the, um, the kind of crazy alt-right group. Dang, uh, right. They're actually, they're, they're for real, first well, of all. Didn't we get that story with a football player just this week? Do you follow that? Yeah, yeah. And he had, it was 308 that was tattooed on his arm, right? I think so. But but that whole, you know, those guys actually showed up on our set, the real guys, and got into a whole confrontation with our cops because that's what they do. They get in the cops' faces. They, they showed up with video cameras. They were, you know, insulting the police, calling them Gestapos and... Um, it was interesting because it wasn't, it didn't feel to me that they were trying to make trouble for us, the production, but it was more an opportunity for them to confront the cops and the cops were, I have to say, they exercised tremendous patience. Uh, I, I had to walk away. I mean, they didn't, <laughs> one of the guys asked me for an autograph, which I thought was really funny. And if I would take a picture with him, um, and I said, you know, normally I would, but you're, you know, you're really screwing us up. You know, you've already cost us an hour of, of time and, you know, I come to do my job. I want to get home and, and have dinner with my kids. I don't want to stand around and, and waste time while you have some piss out with the police. I, I respect your, you know, your belief system and your right to, 
to act as such. But, you know, you're showing up at my job. Don't inflict yourself. Um, so he didn't what get did an he uh, What did he say? What was his response? He said, well, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bigger thing than just your television show. And I said, for you. I said, for you. And I, I, I'm, I'm showing you that respect. I'm not telling you you're full of shit or you're wrong. Uh, you have every right to live the way you want to live as long as you're not hurting people. I don't have a problem with it. I said, but you're, you're hurting me and all these people that, you know, this is our job. So frequently uh, contracts for TV shows are five or seven uh, seasons. Is that why you're ending it after the seventh season? What's going on there? No, that's uh, that played out uh, a bit on social media where people, the immediate leap was that it must be some sort of a contractual negotiation and that, that there's, there's not one bit of truth to that whatsoever. This is a decision that's above my pay grade um, that was made by Amazon to have season seven be the last season. And, uh, and, and while I'm, while I'm, you know, disappointed, there, there's nothing I can do about that. So I, myself and the producers and the writers, we've, we've all sort of agreed that, uh, you know, our job is just to make season seven, um, you know, our best season and see it as the glass half full rather than, than half empty. So nobody on the creative team decided to blow the whistle. No. And if for some reason Amazon changed their mind or assuming the legalities were in order, you could shift to a different platform. Could that happen? Or is this definitely the end? I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Honestly, I, I don't know how you can, sometimes there is a, a, an ability to take a show from one network or, or producing entity and move it elsewhere. I don't know that that's possible to do with Bosch. Um, there, there is certainly no lack of willingness for the show to continue. I mean, Amazon stranger things have happened. They might, they could feasibly change their mind that they could, Season seven could be the last seven and then a couple of years could pass and they may say, Hey, you know what? We're going to, we want to bring this guy back. And, and, uh, I, you know, I, I, I speak for myself and the rest of the cast and certainly the producers and the writers that everyone would, would, would be on board to do that. Absolutely. Okay. One other thing someone watches notices when watching Bosch is the tattoos. So mm -hmm. some people might think it was the character, but in reality, those that is your body with the tattoos. That's true. And so, and, yeah. yeah so no, that was a discussion when we first came together because Harry has these scars on his knuckles from when he was um, a kid living down on the docks in San Pedro as a runaway, he had hold fast tattooed onto his, to his knuckles. And then when Harry enlisted in the army, one of the first things that happened was his drill instructor basically came out and said, Hey, no, 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 no. That's a sailor tattoo. And that's not going to cut it. Takes him behind a barracks and makes him punch a brick wall until his hands look like hamburger. And then when it heals, he makes Bosch go back and do it all over again. So we, every day when I go to work, they paint on these little scars. And I actually, we addressed it in the second or third season. Um, Harry tells the story, tells that story. Now, knowing that when I first, uh, before we started shooting, 
the pilot, I had a tattoo discussion with Eric Obermeyer and with Connolly. I said, look, I have tattoos and I continue to get tattoos. So we can do this one of two ways. And I, I said, I'm aware that he's removed this tattoos, these tattoos from his, from his hands when he was a kid. Um, so it works either way. Either we just have my tattoos. We never come in close on them. Um, or I, if I ever have to wear a short sleeve shirt, it's a couple of hours in the chair because they're going to have to come in. They're going to have to um, airbrush, you know, uh, with a special kind of pigment to cover the tattoos. And they're going to have to flock hair on my arms. To, it's a process and it's going to take a long time. Or I can just never wear a short sleeve shirt and always wear. Uh, and and actually, I said, but I'm I'm actually fine with with showing my tattoos. And Connolly said, yeah, people, it's people are no longer stigmatized by having tattoos. It's not a it's not a taboo thing. It's not indicative of your your standing in society. Um, so Mike said, uh, let's just let's just go with the tattoos. Now, what I will say is I have significantly more tattoos now than I did in the first season. So I would usually get a call from my manager uh, at some point, and he would say, I just got a call from Henrik, who's one, Henrik Bassin, who's one of our producers. Henrik says, he said, did you get some new ink? And I go, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He said, you, you posted some pictures on Instagram of some new tattoos. Um, what are you doing? And I just said, oh, it's, it's just me. I know, but anyway, they've become a part of Harry. I mean, unless someone freezes a frame or certain, certain shots, you can see, but we never talk about them. There was only one time where uh, Brooke Smith was playing a captain at, at, at the Hollywood station. And it was a funny exchange where Bosch walks by her and, she, and uh, Harry's got his sleeves up. And she says, roll down those sleeves, detective. And he kind of comes back and says, what? She says, uh, unless you're going to get a wire brush and take those things off, no ink in my house. Um, and it was. Okay. How old were you when you got your first tattoo? I was a teenager. Okay. And we see the tattoos on your arms. Do you have tattoos on other places in your body, on your body? I just have uh, two. Tat, uh, tattoos on my rib cage, um, which are which are um, two lovely things that my my girlfriend uh, wrote to me, and so I uh, I was so touched I thought I would just okay. So when you when you continue to get these tattoos, do you think that this might impinge on your ability to get roles in the future? Well, it would be the same sort of thing. I could say, look, you know what. This character doesn't have tattoos, so let's cover my tattoos, or let's dress me in wardrobe where you never, where you never see them. Um, I don't think that you know. I've been doing this long enough now, and people know that I have tattoos. That I think they're gonna, they're gonna cast me. They're gonna cast me from the neck up to begin with, and then we can, <laughs> we can deal deal with the tattoos. Um, I remember my aunt saying, "Well, you'll." You know, you, you'll never be buried in a Jewish graveyard. And, and I said, well, but I know, but I'm not 
we're not Jewish. And she, she said, oh, that's right, I forgot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, the only, I'm, I'm the only guy you'll ever meet who had a goy mitzvah, but that's a whole <laughs> other story. Um, well, is there a story there? Yeah, there actually is. When I was, um, all of my extended family as a kid um, were Jewish. So I went to temple. My parents is, were. Is your, is your mother Jewish? No, not at all. I don't have I don't have any background at all. These were all extended family members, people who were, I called aunts and uncles, who I was very 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 close to my family. And so I'm getting ready, and I uh, for my birthday, and I say to my father, uh, "So what are we going to do for my bar mitzvah?" My father just looks at me and says, "What are you talking about?" To my bar mitzvah. You're not having a bar mitzvah. What do you mean I'm not having a bar mitzvah? Of course I am. Danny Goldstein had a bar mitzvah. And David Wiseman had a bar Titus, you have to understand. I said, why am I not having a bar mitzvah? He said, you're not Jewish. I said, yeah, I am. And he said, no, no, no. Being Jewish is a religion. It's not just a state of mind. And so this got back to my aunt, who was so sort of touched and thought it rather hilarious, the whole thing that she came to me and said, I don't want you to worry about this. I'm going to handle it. Which I said, what? She said, just, so it was a gathering. And, um, you know, I read a little, read a little text and, uh, I, and, and she said, it's a goy mitzvah. <laughs> so, and it was, you know, and I, and I, uh, it was, it was kind of a lovely, you know, coming of age experience for me and my, and, uh, my father said, well, you know what? You can say whatever you are now. Um, but I, I just, I think it was just because I was Im immersed in that culture. Um, and uh, that was the only sense of spirituality and religion that I had was going to temple and observing, observing the holidays, both holidays. I mean, we, uh, we would go to my aunt's for uh passover and and um and uh and celebrate hanukkah at her house but then also they would come and you know and have christmas with us so it was it made kind of perfect sense but i i never went to i didn't go to church my parents were my dad said to me you will never go to church with me i wore the seat of my pants out on a on a psychotic uh you know irish roman catholic church bench so i'm not doing that to you guys so we went to Episcopalian schools, and uh, and then I and also I was at the went to school at the Child Study Center. I learned how to swim at the Jewish Community Center in in New Haven. So, did you go to Episcopalian in Philly? Yeah, yeah, I went to the St. Peter School down on Lombard Street. Right. Okay, so, you're so well adjusted. You ever been in psychotherapy? Yeah. Oh, you better believe it. Psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Yeah. I've and. Got is Over. that in the rearview mirror? Or are you still uh, practicing? No, no. I like to. I like to say I'm a work in progress. <laughs> you know, I've said. I've said to my to my kids one at one point when they one of them said to me, "Oh, you had years and years and years of." He was pissed at me, and he was sort right. of venting me about my um, sometimes impatient and cantankerous nature, and and. Uh, yeah, you did all these years of psychoanalysis, and you're still you're you're still half crazy. And I, I said, "Yes, son. Well, that's that's all that it is. It's it's 
you learn to analyze it doesn't mean that you're necessarily out of it. Which kind of, but yeah, tons of it, tons, tons of uh, psychotherapy, and 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 I will maintain that I'm I'm as batshit crazy as I've ever been. I'm just a little bit better at uh, at navigating it and not um, in, inflicting myself on people. I would say I'm a, I'm, I'm a much more uh, centered and well-adjusted uh, creature than I was in the past. So, Bosch, you have all this notoriety that uh, the series has built. Where does this leave you going forward? Well, I'm, you know, I, I'm definitely utilizing this, this uh, lockdown period. Um, I've had a lot of ideas that have kind of been percolating, and um, it becomes that thing of I got to, you know, I got to fix that hinge. And I, I really want to reseal my driveway kind of thing, but of writing. And so I'm, um, I'm putting together some ideas that have been floating around and the post, uh, post Bosch life will be, um, you know, hopefully realizing those things, but you never know because, um, I think once, well, one can only hope that I'm become a free agent again, that there will be you know, other opportunities. It may be that thing, right. Where I go to somebody and I hand them say, here's the, here's the show that I wrote that I want it for myself that I want to do. And they'll go, that's great. So I have this one that the studio has already committed to. And if you want to do it, we can start shooting this next month. I, I think it'll be, it'll be interesting. I'm not one I'm, you know, sedentary is not my nature. So whether I'm putting it down on a piece of paper immediately or if I'm um, letting the idea gestate and, and the idea has gestated enough to the point now where I can actually sit down and start to, to write a, an outline. And, and uh, I think it's a, I think it's good. It, it's very different than, than Bosch, but um, I think it's a solid idea. So hopefully um, the next time I talk to you, uh, we can be talking about that. Or we could also be having that conversation where you could say, you remember what I said to you when you were on the show? Hey, mm-hmm. what if Don decides they want to do this? Well, here we are. We're back and we're still doing it. Um, you know, that's uh, Look, I, I just love to work. I'm very, very fortunate that I can make uh, a, a pretty damn good living doing what I love to do. And, uh, and, and I love to work. I'm, I, I like okay, so let's just say for the 30 years, we'll give you 30 years on this planet. If you just continue to work, is that satisfying? Men try to tend to think of a, a, a totem pole. Is there some specific goal that you want to reach or a conceptual level? I would like to um, begin uh, to direct, certainly. Uh, I, that had been a consideration on Bosch. Uh, it just, the schedule and how it works just for me seemed to make it uh, too daunting. And then when I realized it was going to be uh, our last season, um, I said, you know what, I, I kind of pulled my hat out of the ring because that's what we were going to do. I was going to come in and direct in the seventh season. And then I just said, you know what, I really want to focus on doing the show. If that boomerangs back at another time, if there is life elsewhere or something, yeah, sure. But that's something I would like to do. And I would also like to um, develop other things uh, as a writer, not just for myself, but for 
for other actors and to direct and produce those those projects and and as always continue uh my career as a painter which is something that's that's important to me how often do you paint well right now i'm not painting at all because my studio's back east i typically paint when i'm back at the at my farm during the summertime i i take that that solid month and get up and paint every single day because i paint in acrylics and i paint very quickly i will typically paint for a solid six to seven hours and in a day to complete a painting so i have a lot are these representational or abstract yeah they're at i mean it definitely falls into the the column of uh abstract expressionism not dissimilar from from my father but also very very different than his but i paint landscapes they're landscapes but they're it's and are these uh paintings shown and for sale yes they are yeah um they uh i i had a show actually here in los angeles at the at the ohm gallery at uh, bergamot station um and i'm i'm looking to uh actually had a print that was purchased by the museum of modern art in new york wow. which congratulations thank you thank you i know i'm um i wish my old man could be alive to see that because he would uh and i know that would that would please him okay this has been wonderful titus really as i say you're quite the conversationalist raconteur and we could go on forever but i think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known today thanks so much for doing this it's been great thank you much for having me and I, I just want to tell you what a great privilege it is to 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 be able to talk to you one-on-one I'm a, I'm a longtime fan and um i have to say uh for one who doesn't read reviews i was so um hounded and pounded by friends family and representation to read the beautiful things that you wrote so you're the first my friend and i have to say i read it very quickly and i went but um but thank you. Thank right. You for- Although that reminds me of a couple of things on James uh, Taylor's gorilla album from 1975 oh, has a great song called lighthouse. And he goes, just because I might be standing here, that doesn't mean I won't be wrong this time. <laughs> <laughs> Words and, to live by. And the other thing, that's what people do. You know, people say, Oh, you're so right on whatever. I give them that back. Cause I can't hold that. The other thing I tell people is every day, I hear people email me that I'm God and people email me that I'm a shithead. So, you know, the nature of the internet is you get that instant response. It's beautiful. I read it, you know, on some levels, a level of inoculation, although there's people email me every day to tell me that I'm a shithead. So (laughs) some of those people, uh, I don't read anymore, but thanks again. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials, and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant, or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details.